Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch Podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, Lauren Hurl talks with Representative Seth Bongarts of Manchester to discuss his housing equity bill and efforts to expand smart growth housing. Later on is my conversation with Representative Elizabeth Burroughs, which centers accessibility on state-owned and managed trails, as well as inside the walls of the state house. But first, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about the work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for our session shakedown segment where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. All right, Lauren, let's recap week three of the session as we saw it. Last week, we forecasted that the House Environment and Energy Committee would start work on the 30 by 30 bill, which calls for the conservation of 30% of our forests by 2030. However, that's moving a bit slower and we should see it this week, but they definitely set the stage for that and some other priority legislation. Yeah, so far, the uh, Environment and Energy Committee has been continuing to do a lot of uh, laying the groundwork, hearing from various experts on the issues that they're going to be taking up this year. Uh, We see that this week, they're going to be looking at bills like household hazardous waste and how we manage that. Um, And I believe starting a conversation about modernizing the bottle bill, which was legislation that uh, passed both the House and Senate last year, but stalled out before it made its way to the governor's desk. Okay, going to be a good week. Yeah. On, uh, on Thursday last week, the, the Climate Caucus met to make to break down the Affordable Heat Act. And because that is in the Senate committee where they've been hearing testimony all week, Senators Becca White and Chris Bray walked through that bill to the caucus members. And you had a chance to speak with Senator White and Representative Gabrielle Stebbins later that day, for our Climate Dispatch video segment. What were some of the takeaways from that? First and foremost, there was just a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for the fact that the Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a group of legislators that all ran on and really care about making sure that the legislature is acting on climate in quick and in equitable ways. And so they've been seeing great turnout and participation uh, from that group. And so I think that was something that was really conveyed when we connected with them. And they were looking to understand the various priorities that uh, caucus members were coming in with and also make sure that they were staying focused on key priorities like the Affordable Heat Act. Awesome. And you can check that video out on our website. Also Thursday, and speaking of caucuses, the Rural Caucus took proposals from members to be included in their omnibus bill, and some highlights there were proposals around incentivizing missing middle housing and rural development in downtowns, 
municipal solar bulk buying, working lands enterprise initiative funding, rural EV charging infrastructure, and recreational economy funding. There was also a proposal around trail accessibility by Representative Elizabeth Burroughs, which I will talk to her about in our main interview later on. These proposals were voted upon over the weekend by the Legislative Caucus members, and we should know more about what rises to the top later this week. Friday, the governor gave his budget address. Any surprises or noteworthy outcomes from that, Lauren? Yeah, I would say there weren't really any huge surprises from the governor's budget address. It's a lot of continuation of programs and investments that we've seen in recent years and you know, some kind of smaller scale, a couple million here, a couple million there, not massive investments in uh, the environment and energy space. Uh, The one thing that was a little noteworthy was there was a whole section of the budget address talking about the governor's desire to kind of go back and do climate action planning, really essentially throwing the climate action plan that the Climate Council set up by the legislature has been working really hard to to put together, kind of throwing that work under the bus and saying, we want to go back and do our own report and come out with an outcome that we like better. So that was disappointing. And, you know, hopefully the legislature will stay on track to move the really important and really thoughtful and well-crafted work that the Climate Council has been doing for the last few years. Yeah, that was really interesting. I was when he said that, I was like, we've already have a plan. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? A new plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, there was big news around housing in both the Senate and House. Uh, we will get the House conversation in just a moment. But in the Senate, Senator Keisha Rom Hinsdale met with us Friday morning to give us a preview of a bill that she introduced to her committee, committee later that day. And last Wednesday, we caught up with Representative Seth Bongarts at the State House cafeteria to ask him a few questions about his efforts around expanding housing and smart growth in his House committee. You may notice some background noise in this next segment, but let's take a listen. Hello, I am delighted to be joined by Representative Seth Bongarts, who is a member of the uh, newly reconstituted Environment and Energy Committee. And Representative Bongarts has been serving on the Natural Resources Committee for several years and, and has a ton of experience in, in these issues. And so really appreciate you joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank <laughs> Great. you for having me. Yeah, and um, Representative Bongarts is getting a lot of attention this week uh, because of a lot of really hard work that he's been doing alongside quite a few stakeholders looking at the housing crisis. Of course, a huge issue we've been hearing so much about. So before getting into what's happening now, can you just give us a little context about kind of what the legislature has been doing in the last couple of years to address the housing crisis? Well, the main thing the legislature has been able to do, especially because of ARPA funding over the last three years, is put about somewhere on the order of $300 million um, into affordable housing, a lot of it through BHCB and other other ways to get the money out. Um, And we did do some legislation last year that does help it make it easier to build priority housing projects uh, in town centers and also to do infill development in town centers. So we put those uh, few things together and we've actually made some real progress over the last um, couple of years or three years in large part though, because we've had access to the ARPA money. So we've really been able to put 
money in the housing that we hadn't been able to do before. That is excellent. Um, so knowing that there's that base to work from, um, looking forward, I know that you spent a ton of time after uh, ending the last legislative session working. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of who you've been working with and what you've been doing to try to identify some of those key remaining issues with housing? Well, there are some things we can con we can control with uh, getting housing built and some things we can't control. We can't control the cost of materials. Um, for instance, but we can um, make it easier to build in places that it might have historically been a little bit harder to build. And ironically, that's often town centers. Um, so a number of us, including some people, EDs of um, regional commissions, uh, the Vermont Natural Resources Council, um, housing people, um, the Natural Resources Board, I was able to pull those people together and others, I promise you I've left them out, um, for what turned out to be almost weekly meetings, um, really looking at the ways that we can remove impediments to building housing in downtowns. Um, it's worthy of note that, uh, to state the obvious, that's where we want housing. If we have to build, and the estimate is um, from Vermont Housing Finance, that we need to build upwards of 40,000 units in the next 10 years in order to sort of meet demand and be where we need to be, it seems to me almost obvious the only place that it makes sense for that to happen is downtowns because the alternative is sprawl. Um, and so, but very often our zoning ordinances, many of which are holdovers or have elements of holdover from 50 years ago when we were looking at large lot sizes in downtowns in order to protect what was then the sort of historic, um, I guess, nature of those downtowns, um, really have the effect of making it it's very difficult, if not impossible, for low and moderate income people to live in downtowns and gain access to services and walkability, the same, you know, the same way that some people have, but that community, those low and moderate income people often don't. So our zoning ordinances often have discriminatory impact, unintentionally, uh, I think historically, but that's what, ha what it has resulted in. So we were looking for ways to make it easier to build in downtowns and therefore uh, concomitantly help take pressure off um, farmland and forest land. Fabulous. Yeah, we talk a lot about smart growth development or really making sure that, you know, we're creating the right policies and incentives to develop um, where we want it. And, you know, we know that change is happening and shaping how that uh, development is happening. Um, and we know we need to address the housing crisis. So could you just uh, kind of wrap us up with talking about, so legislation has been introduced and what do you anticipate the next steps yeah, to be? Yeah, so um, we put legislation together. And I will say that we went through about 15 drafts um, <laughs> and, and literally because we would, we test ideas. And uh, then the more we talked about it, we go, man, yeah, that's actually not a good idea. That's not that's not really going to fly or that's going to be too controversial or more controversial than it's worth the effort for. Um, and so we ended up with a bill that I introduced actually last night. I put it into the hopper last night, I think with 38 co-sponsors, tripartisan support. Um, and what it does at its core is it allows for, actually requires, if you will, um, increased density in downtowns. So that it, for instance, sets in areas was served by sewer and water, it says the towns must allow at least five units per acre. Um, it allows fourplexes anywhere where there's sewer and water, because those are the kinds of things that make it possible to build housing 
in downtowns where we need them. And we should look at this, in my view, as a complete positive because people in downtowns, it's actually one of the problems in Vermont is that very often we don't have a lot of people living in downtowns and getting people into Vermont into downtowns creates vibrant communities. And so this is about both combating sprawl or helping to alleviate the pressures that create sprawl and helping to create uh, vibrant downtowns. And so um, I, th I think there's a lot of momentum for this and a lot of a lot of support. Of course, you know, all we can do with this process is do the best job we can do during the summer and fall to prepare something that then starts through the committee process. Yeah. So you can either just put in some ideas that really haven't been vetted, or you can go uh, take the time to go through the process of uh, thoroughly vetting and trying to have it be as fully baked as possible by the time you put it in. And that's what we tried to do over the summer. And it was really, frankly, it was fun to work with all the people who uh, helped put this together. Um, it, uh, well, anyway, the list of people that I talked yeah. about and all those I left out. Right. So, but, but it really was, um, but it was, a, it was a great process. Uh, I think everybody enjoyed participating in it. That's great. Well, so grateful that so many folks were thinking hard about this issue that's on every Vermonter's mind, yep. and I'm sure it'll be a very robust and active conversation at the State House. So we will keep you all posted on how that is playing out, and really appreciate your time, Representative Bongard, today to walk us through the basics, and we'll probably have you back as it continues working right. through the process. Be, Thanks so much. That'll be great. I look forward to it. All right. To take it. care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. My guest today is Representative Elizabeth Burroughs. She is a Democratic progressive representing the towns of Heartland, West Windsor, and Windsor in the Windsor One District. Elizabeth has worked in her own way uh, to towards dismantling systemic racism and other exclusionary biases, beginning at our state schools. It was a powerful impetus in her running for the House of Representatives in 2020. She celebrates diversity of all sorts for its crucial benefits towards creativity and collaboration and strives to institutionalize inclusion. Today in our conversation, we will dig further on that very topic and how it relates to the environment in a global sense and also on a micro level. Hi, Elizabeth, and thank you for being on the Democracy Dispatch podcast. Hi, it's nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Starting right off with our natural resources in mind, of course, what are the greatest concerns in Windsor County around water, forests, energy, and sustainability within uh, your communities? And what are you hearing from constituents? Well, uh, where I live, we live in towns that are either adjacent to or surrounding Mount Escutney. And uh, we're trying to, the Regional Planning Commission is trying to come up with new kinds of trails um, and ways to bring more tourism to Mount Escutney. And uh, we also live in an area which is, two of my three towns are dominated by uh, second homeowners and retirees. <clears throat> so statewide, we have an aging population and uh, I don't think that um, we are really taking into account the physicality of aging and uh, the um, kind of what would be, maybe, and probably will be a rapid onset of uh, people who can't get around very easily. And so uh, one of the things I've been pushing for is to at least take into account that population 
um, when considering adding all these new trails in our district, but also statewide. When I when I asked the regional planning commission, the regional planning commission had a guest, um, and in a public forum who was talking about the you know the the um, uh, possibilities for Mount Escutney. I asked him how many um, how many trails state statewide in state parks are currently accessible, and he didn't know, and the answer was zero. Um, and so that's where that's where it all began. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's definitely why I wanted to have you on the podcast for sure. And and I think a little selfishly too, if I if I can uh, preface this next question by sharing a little bit about some of the work that I've done um, in my hometown of Cambridge in 2020, um, after a great deal of fundraising work and and you know, a bureaucracy red tape, as you I'm sure are aware. Um, through my role on the Cambridge Conservation Commission, we were able to preserve 51 acres of land abutting the Cambridge State Forest uh, in an effort to improve access to that forest, which there was no parking and there's certainly no trails to the forest or within. It's uh, a, a, the site of one of some of the oldest standing trees in the state. Um, but developing the parking lot and trails was was really an important element to the forest and uh, into the conservation. But another layer to that, a bit more complicated, is the physical access limitations for all the visitors. Um, you introduced the bill in 2021 around state trail accessibility, which you which you mentioned. Is there, where, what's the status of that? And um, if you can expand more about your work more broadly on, on creating more access to our natural places. Well, I should, for full disclosure, I'm a person who can't get around very easily. And uh, for my entire life, I've been having to pretend that it's all cool for me to have to uh, pay attention to every place my foot, my feet land. And uh, uh, when I was about 20 years old, I went um for a hike in the uh Olympic National Forest and there they had a 5 mile long planked trail and it was the first and only time that I've really been able to go for a long hike or walk without having to being able to actually experience the forest around me and do what everybody else does when they're you be able to experience the the um the environment the way everybody else does and not have to pay attention to where my feet were landing and uh it's a very 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 different experience um and uh so when i was researching this bill i contacted the person he lives in boston but he's actually from vermont who is responsible for uh, <clears throat> ADA compliance in New England and kind of interpreting the ADA, um, the American Disabilities Act uh, details and what is compliance and what isn't. And I learned that there's no such thing as compliance for trails. The ADA does not apply to, it only applies to indoors. It doesn't apply to outdoors. And so, uh, there's no such thing as a, con a compliant trail. There's only an accessible trail. And that's part of the problem is that there's no 
definition of accessibility. Uh, so I wrote a short form bill, which means that if it had been taken up by a committee, um, it would have been up to the committee to fill in the details, but it simply said that 10% uh, of all new trails built on state lands should, uh, wait, sorry, that 100% of all new trails built on state lands should have 10% um, accessibility built into them. And that, uh, uh, so any funding for a, a new trail should include that element. So that's what the bill was. Uh, it died. It was never taken off the wall um, by, uh, I think it, it wound up in um, human services and not, oh no, we wound up in natural resources and not in human services. And there was no co communication between, uh, between the two committees. So that's what happened to it. I plan to resubmit it this year. Awesome. That's good. I love, love to hear that. I know for us in Cambridge, our major limitations for expanding access were centered around grant funding and yeah. uh, it was a race against the clock. I mean, obviously that's the same yep. thing that you deal with uh, in the state house. You're, you know, you've got a timeline and um, is this, do you think a trait of an ableist society where we prioritize physical ability or is it a more complex issue than that? I do think we prioritize physical ability and I, I don't, you know, I, when you make the case for it, you know, you think about the aging Vermonters, you think about people with children who have, you know, baby buggies or strollers or whatever. And you think about all the different people who could use it, but you also think about like, uh, people who can't get around very easily and how important, uh, being outside is to their, their health. And uh, not just sitting outside, but being being part of taking in that clean air and and uh, having some physical activity to to just simply cut like l t whole handedly leave that sector of the population, which will be growing, um, leave that sector of the population out is, I think, really irresponsible. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I was really surprised by some of the, um, responses that I got to my, when I was trying to collect, um, supporters for the bill, I received a few emails in response saying, well, what would regular people do? You're taking trails away from regular people. And it's like, that's not, <laughs> that's not what that is. It's... Actually, you know, it's the it's the whole rising tide lifts all boats. You know, you'll have even more access to it. Um, but uh, and what was what was really disheartening about that was that um, you know it's a uh, I think it's just absolutely forgotten. Um, uh, it was people who work for all kinds of human rights and, and, uh, social equity who wrote me these, e those same emails. Um, so it was really, it was really surprising. Yeah. I, I mean, it's surprising and also 
unfortunately not at the same time in a lot of ways. I think that um, when we're, well, I mean, we can get into this in a minute. I've got another question about that. But, <laughs> um, I spoke with Representative Sadia Lamont recently about the functions of this work, being a legislator and the mental and physical toll that it can have on able, even for able-bodied people. Right. Um, but they also mentioned to me just how far the literal state house within these walls has to go to be more accommodating to the disability community. Can you expand on some of the issues um, that you see and share with me what you and others are doing to improve it? Well, we, uh, we had a, we tried, so we had COVID, right? And uh, COVID, during COVID, uh, we were able to legislate remotely and last year, um, and, and so then when we had the kind of uh, semi-COVID year last year, you could legislate remotely if you could prove that you had COVID. But there was an incident where there was a snowstorm, and uh, uh, the snowstorm took place on Thursday night, and on Friday morning, there were all like about... 50, 40 or 50 legislators who suddenly had COVID. Um, and uh, uh, so another person who can't get around very easily and I um, asked if it would be possible for people who can't get around very easily to um, be able to legislate remotely when there's really bad inclement weather. Um, and uh, we went to the rules committee and we talked with them about that. It took them uh, uh, like three different meeting times to to um, finally pass it, and it passed the first week of May when there would be no more inc inclement weather. And it was it was only for that one session, but we heard um, during that time a couple of people say. Well, if you can't get around, you know you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't run for office because you know what is in, entailed in the job. And if you can't do it, then don't run. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's that. What we learned in the process of that was that um, uh, what is it called? Um, you know, have have you ever heard of qualified immunity? It's a it's a it stems from a Supreme Court case. And uh, it's the law which kind of shields police officers from being prosecuted in some of their behaviors. But it also it also applies to legislators. And um, so, uh, like, if legislators make a mistake in the course of their job, they're not they're not prosecuted for it unless it's egregious. But uh, so. What that actually also means is that uh, a legislature is not beholden to the American Disabilities Act at all. So anything that a legislature does to uh, comply with the ADA is a favor to, uh, or a, a moral obligate done out of moral obligation and not out of legal obligation. Um, because it is a civil law 
it is corrected through civil penalty and because legislators can't be legislatures can't be sued there's no way to to uh, enforce it so with that being said that is a long way of saying there is a lot to be done at the state house if i had a a um constituent who wanted to sit in the gallery at the in the um house chamber they have to sit up in the third floor and i can't um go up and meet with them i can't get up there um there is a uh there's no way for a person who uses a wheelchair to um get into the house chamber uh there's no place for them to sit um there's there's all i mean myriad problems in the in the state house and and again it's uh you know in order to request different changes to be made you have to go through the rules committee and i just told you what happened when we <laughs> went to the rules committee to ask for remote participation during inclement weather so uh it doesn't prevent me from trying and doing it but uh it's you know that's where we are yeah wow i didn't even uh realize the the limitations necessarily i'm i'm fairly new to the work here and um but this it's yeah that's incredible and so uh, essentially if someone were to be in a wheelchair they would not be able to legislate uh in no now I think legislators, a, a person in a wheel, a legislator in a wheelchair could do it because the, the desks themselves actually can be removed to accommodate okay. a wheelchair, but a person visiting the state house can't do it. Got it. Yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> We, and it's very the the problem the the thing that's really maddening about that is that uh, there's a very very simple fix that would not cost more than like five hundred dollars to do, but uh, they keep punting it down the road, like saying they need to have a study committee about it or some do a study on it. And and what just out of curiosity, what is that fix? Uh, there's a. I'd have to show it to you. There's an edge to the the gallery that could be removed. Um, simply that, and the way in for legislators um, is wide enough so that if that side of the gallery was removed, just the edge, the one piece, a person who uses a wheelchair could get in there really easily, and and uh, all would be solved. Well, you know, I, this kind of, this makes sense to my next, my next bit. And that's that I first want to thank you for doing this work and also reminding our listeners and, and peers that advocacy and for marginalized communities does not always need to rest on the shoulders of the people within those communities. Um, I also want to remind people that ally is not just a noun, it's also a verb too. It's an action. Um, this kind of work shouldn't be only proposed by you or Representative Lamont or former Representative Kalaki. Uh, we should be experiencing our surroundings through different lenses and asking ourselves, what would it 
be like to show up in this space as a queer person or as a person of color or a person with disability. Um, so with that being said, what advice would you give? Is there a certain call to action that you would implore our listeners to rise on? <sighs> uh, I, you know, broadly speaking, I think this building should be available to every single person. My call to action would be to make your legislators be mindful of who, of all of the people that they're serving and not leaving anybody out. And, you know, we're, we're, we've come back in this session all about accountability and uh, accountability is, is really big on the, on school boards, on, uh, you know, at legislatures on every board, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. And then it, it's bigger than politeness. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, I want to, Elizabeth, I want to thank you first for taking the time out of your day and um, speaking with me on this important topic. And I hope to see you around the state house. Yeah, me too. And I also want to chat with you about Austin, Texas, because I know you lived there and um, I'll be visiting Austin for the first time this spring. So I hope All to. right. Are yeah. you from South by Southwest? I'm, yes, I'm actually our, um, I'm the, on the board of Drag Story Hour and we're presenting at the EDU Con. Oh my God, Justin. Uh, yes, let's talk about that because uh, I can, I can help you. I can, Yeah. Amazing. Great. Well, I can't wait to, to see you and chat more about that and uh, to contact Representative Bureaus and, and to and learn more about her, visit elizabethvt.com. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Justin. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. 40,000. That is the number of new housing units that the Vermont Housing Finance Agency estimates the state needs by 2030, according to reporting by seven days. Currently, developers are building about 2,700 homes per year, many of them seasonal, instead of the 6,000 needed to keep up with demand. I want to thank our guests, Representative Elizabeth Burroughs and Representative Seth Bonkarts, as well as Lauren Earl for assisting me. We will be back next Monday, and until next time, thanks for listening.